Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Amen. Hey, good morning, Journey Church. And all of our first-time guests, second-time guests, people back from summer. And uh, hey, what do you think of this weather? Crazy, crazy. Wow. All weekend long, our local newscasters were issuing a warning and saying, do not go hiking or camping. Save it for another day. So I knew it was going to be a perfect day on the mountain. <laughs> it's all to myself, right? So yesterday at 1.30, my son-in-law, Taylor, and I uh, set out up Espero Trail trying to make it to Bridalville Falls. That's a six-mile trek. And did we make it? Not a chance. Three miles up and over 2,000 vertical feet, and the trail disappeared from view. I kid you not, it is an absolute rainforest jungle. I've been on that trail before where you don't need a GPS, you don't need a map, you just walk. And you can see where that trail goes, and we got up through uh, the major pass where it starts to level out, and you go, oh, we can finally start making some time and the reality was there, there was just no time to be made. It was, it was invisible. Furthermore, we were soaked to the bone. And waterproof trousers and boots were no match. I'm talking like we just went through the swimming pool and, and slogging and sloshing, wool socks, you know, weighing five pounds apiece. We were sopping wet. Wet, messy march. And the trail lost. Listen, the reason why I tell you this story is not just to tell you what I like to do on Saturdays or free time or rebelling against the local newscasters, although that really is a thing, but uh, to actually tell you this is a picture of our world concerning sex and sexuality. This is the sexual mores of our times. And we are soaked to the bone, the trail has been lost, and we are running out of daylight. And guess what? It has absolutely invaded the church, even this church. We are catechized day by day, and, and nothing is immune from it. We are being taught a, a worldview of sex and sexuality. And you say, I don't buy into it, I just watch it. And yet it has a cooling effect on our take on what God has for us. It's subtle. But it's very clear that this is what is happening. Soaked to the bone, the trail lost, and running out of daylight. Far from home. Well, this morning we continue our teaching series in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's going to run through the end of the year. And we engage this gritty topic, specifically the topic of adultery. In the Greek, the word moikos, technically, the technical definition one who has unlawful intercourse with another's wife. And you go, okay, haven't done that. It doesn't even appeal to me. But I would argue that this is just a touchstone. This is a touch point of Jesus. This is the, the vivid example that he is using to, to open this Pandora's box of any and all sexual immorality in our world. Any manner of sexual immorality, including any and all sex activity outside the sacred commitment of marriage. 
Why does Jesus do this? In fact, why the, last week the subject of, of hate and murder and on into uh, keeping uh, commitments without using oaths and so on and so forth, Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy says this about Jesus and why he's going there to these gritty topics when he says when Jesus deals with moral evil and goodness, he does not begin by theorizing This is not like safe Sunday school answers. But Jesus immediately plunges into the guts of human existence. Things like raging anger, contempt, hatred, obsessive lust, divorce, verbal manipulation, revenge, slapping, suing, cursing, coercing, and begging. It is the stuff of soap operas and the daily news and real life. Why? such gritty subject matter because when it comes to sex and sexuality our world is a sloppy mess it is a train wreck from the moment that our great great grandparents sinned by eating the fruit we lost god's trail for us and not a single one of us has gotten this right nor will we get this perfect every single one of us has been damaged by broken in And made our own sinful choices in this arena of sexual morality. We are confused, disoriented, soaked to the bone, lost the trail, far from home, and losing daylight. Not a single one of us is safe. You've heard the name Howard Hendricks, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, I don't know if he's passed on. He died a couple years ago. But it was uh, the story that in one of his classes, he ended by praying these words, and dear God, keep me from becoming a dirty old man. After the class was over, one of his students came before him and said, Dr. Hendricks, that seems so strange. You're a godly man. You have pursued the Lord all these years. You're up into your, your 70s or 80s. I mean, you got to just admit, like as we age, our, our libido drops What is this about? And he said to the student that quite often it seems as if God saves the greatest giants for later in life. And what Howard Hendricks was admitting is, yeah, I might have some victory in this area, but I'm not home yet. Listen, I recognize in here we got both victims and victimizers. We've got people that have been deeply damaged and scarred. We have perpetrators in everything and everyone in between. You know, we've heard hurt people hurt people. Uh, sexual abuse doesn't just come out of, out of nowhere. It's typically passed along. Um, it changes us. And yet, God has something better for every single person in here. You might be a, a secondhand um, victim. Someone hurt or damaged your spouse, and now that makes things in the bedroom weird, in everything in between. And so today, as we delve into this passage in this text, I'm well aware of that. There's a lot of pain, and there's a lot of remorse, and there's a lot of guilt and shame in here. And I believe God has something very precious, something very special for us today, and I don't want to lose you along the way. I don't want you to be so triggered that you can't listen. That has, in fact, happened over this topic before, where people go, hey, I just can't be here. When God really wants to bring healing, 
So can we just stop and ask for God's mercy? Father, um, because we know that hurt people hurt people, and we're both hurt, and we're both uh, uh, individuals who have hurt others. And Lord, it's just a big old mess. It's a jungle. We've lost our way. The world's just a train wreck. But Lord, even us in here, even us in here, not a single one of us got this right, is getting this right, or will get this right, and yet your grace and your mercy and then your holiness and then your transforming Holy Spirit wants more for us. That from this point on that we would walk in a new path with a new mind and a new heart. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name, and if you agree with that, please say amen. So we started 13 weeks ago looking at the Beatitudes, and we went through all eight of those, Um, and this is definitely in line, and, and these topics that we're looking at now constantly are looping back to these Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are merciful, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, that the rest of the, the uh, sermon is dripping with these principles, and the sermon itself will throw us back to those Beatitudes. After those eight, nine weeks, we came upon um, our call and our role, our ministry in this world as those who are not perfect yet, but we're the best ambassadors that this world is ever going to get. And Jesus described us, those who are uh, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as salt and light in this world. After that, he answered the question that was everyone was begging him to answer, and that is, well, what do you say about the law? What do you say about the Ten Commandments? Are you uh, obliterating those? Are you overthrowing those? Are you bringing a new set of laws? Are you going to abolish those? Those are pretty crazy, and add to that all the other uh, Jewish laws and, and really, really the moral laws of God that before Uh, The Ten Commandments were even codified and written. The moral law of God. Jesus, what do you say about that? And he answered that, said, I didn't come to abolish those. Not one jot or tittle, not one uh, punctuation mark will pass away the law and the prophets until all has been accomplished. Then he made this statement. He made this statement concerning the law and lifestyle. The law and purity of heart, the law and salvation, the law and the forgiveness of sins when he said these words in Matthew 5, 20. Because last week, this week, and the next four weeks are anchored in Matthew 5, 20. In fact, what we're talking about is an example of how Matthew 5, 20 works in real life gritty rubber-meets-the-road kinds of issues like sexual purity, adultery, fornication, where Jesus says this, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, goes above and beyond, that is, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the question is, what is this righteousness that exceeds? And we have a uh, a running six-week bottom line. It's not in your bulletin today. It's up here on the screen where um, really, and we're seeing this in, in six different areas, that a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees is a righteousness that is above the letter of the law. You don't just look at it and check the box. It's not a line that you cross or don't cross. It's above the letter. It has the spirit of the law. It's beneath the surface. It's not external conformity. I look good, I I kept all that stuff managed, you couldn't see it, but what's going on in the storm of my heart? No, it's actually below the surface 
of behaviors in the heart. And it's beyond the prohibition. These aren't just like, do not, thou shalt not. That in every prohibition, there's also a positive world of what he wants for us. A world of true, genuine, spiritual, physical, relational flourishing that he wants for this world. Let alone his children and his church. And can I just throw this tension out there that if that's the new law, if that's the new standard, and that we go, okay, so we're repenting, we're agreeing with that standard now, we're screwed. We're done. I have not done that. I cannot do that. And so that's going to throw me right back to the poor in spirit. And I want you to hear that clearly. Okay, two things. One, you, you cannot, you have not, you will not. And so we come with poverty of spirit and God, I can't, I didn't. I want to though. And Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That it throws, it casts us on the, the, the righteousness of Christ. And that he is our covering. And I want you to hear that clearly. At the same time, and you're going to hear this again and again in this talk. It doesn't mean that we just go, oh, I'm as bad as I want to be and Jesus forgives me. That when Jesus forgives us, he gives us a new heart. And he, clear, he, he, he shows us his heart for us. He gives us a heart to actually believe and obey. And no, we're not going to get it perfect, but we start to move in the direction of God's heart for us. And he makes it possible to walk in that. Now, as I said, Jesus gives six corrective illustrations or examples of this principle right here. In the first last week of, of murder, and today, adultery. And then he's going to go on into divorce. Next, next Sunday, we're going to look at that. And what is Jesus doing in this? I've already described it. It's an impossible righteousness, but it's something that he starts to do in us. He's actually resetting the boundaries of the law and the prophets as he originally gave them. Jesus is the lawgiver. The pre-incarnate Christ gave these to Moses. Next, he's correcting those who, for centuries, the scribes, the Pharisees, the rabbis, had twisted and tortured. They'd loosened the requirements, and they'd added to the permissions of the law to make it so that they could externally conform to it. I've said that it's an impossibly high standard. It's the very character of, of the kingdom of heaven, by, of those who are being transformed from the heart. We can walk in newness of life. In a transformed pattern of heart. But if you think this is a new commandment, because I know we have them here, I know you. You're a box checker. You're a box checker. That's exactly why the Sermon on the Mount was given. Because you're not going to please Christ. You're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven by checking the box. There must be something more. So we look at all these things and we come to our central text for today. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. If you have your Bibles, open up there. If not, I think we're going to put these up on the, on the screen. But this is what Jesus said, the second example. You have heard that it was said, and surely they did hear what it was said. This is the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. And they thought, good, we checked the box. I'll explain that in a moment. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, you could switch this around. And ladies, it might not even be what you look with your eyes. Some of you are now rewired like that. I know that's happening in society. But first and foremost, it's the idolatry of romance. It might be in word form. It might be in a novel. It might be in a, in a, in a sitcom or a story that draws you in. And immorality is more of a story of, of romance and passion and not just pornography. And I believe that included in this all forms of, of immorality, Jesus is just using a very clear example that he could poke on. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So there you have below the surface. Below the surface. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away from you. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better if you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. Now... I need to let you know that in first century Rome and Greece, all right, in towns like Corinth, um, adultery, sexual immorality of all shape and kind was um, encouraged. It was good. Uh, there were certain things that you can actually find in Plato, Aristotle, and, and the like. They go, no, that's just stupid. Um, not because it's wrong, but because it's dishonorable. But I'll tell you, like in Corinth, uh, the, the word to Corinthianize was to take you up to the temple and have sex with a prostitute. And now you're one of us. And so Greco-Roman culture was not pure. However, first century Judea, they actually read the law. They looked for the line and the box to check, and they found it in the seventh commandment. It's recorded in both Exodus 20 um, and Deuteronomy 5. You shall not commit adultery. And so for the most part, while it did in fact happen in Judea, in Israel, first century Jews found it disgraceful and detestable. I will just say our culture were much more Greco-Roman than first century Judaism. That now you follow your heart, and oh, she melted your heart, and your marriage has gone cold, and he's abusive, and you know, it's just the right thing, and who can really speak against that? And it's really kind of celebrated that you finally found love later on in life. And you got to find the love of your life. You got to find your true soulmate and go, oh, they finally found love. And that's what it's about. We are so much more Greco-Roman than Jewish in our view of this. But let me just say this. The Jews looked for the line to cross and the box to check. And they found it in this seventh commandment. They should have kept reading. Because in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, three more commandments down in the tenth commandment says this, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, field, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That the, even the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, went from beyond just committing the act of adultery. That they all said, check. They're looking around. Jesus is teaching, going, check. We got this one. And yet Jesus took it to the Tenth Commandment. That adultery is not just a, a thing of the hands and the body. It's a matter of the heart 
and of the desires. Job, the man of God. The man of God, and actually Job, we believe that this is the most ancient piece of biblical literature. Lived long before Moses was given the Ten Commandments. In Job, in Job chapter 31, he is uh, fighting for his honor. He's declaring his integrity. He does not understand why he is suffering as he does. He does not know what's going on behind the veil. And his three buddies are convinced the only way someone suffers like this is that there's sin in your heart. If not, uh, in, in secret. You're doing something bad because nobody suffers like this. And Job's befuddled. He's going, it's not true. And he is defending himself and talking about this matter when he says, I'm going to read the whole 12 verses. I'm going to have a few highlighted up here. But he goes, in Job 31, verse 1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I gaze upon a virgin? This is the, the lustful stare of undressing her and imagining her curves and imagining what it would be like to get into bed with her. He goes, how can I do that? I made a promise with my eyes before Almighty God. And he goes on to say, what would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? If I had done that, I would be getting what I deserved, he's saying. Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I've walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in the just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step, this is verse 7, has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes. So he's actually seeing there's a connection. It's not just what I do with my body. My eyes can see stuff in my heart. I can give into it and say, I want that. I'm going to imagine about that. I'm going to, I'm going to foster a desire in my heart. He says, if, if that's happened, and if any spot has stuck to my hand, then let me sow and another eat. Let what grows for me be rooted out. If my heart, below the surface of the eyes, definitely beyond that of the body, if my heart has been enticed toward a woman... And if I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. Definitely a, a, a euphemism there. Um, for that would be a heinous crime. If I allowed my heart to go in the way of lustful longing, a lust fest, I'm just going to just, I'm not going to do it, but I'm just going to give in to it. I'm just going to think about it. Be aroused by it. Foster a dirty mind and a dirty heart, but I'm not going to do it. Job says that that would be iniquity to be punished by the judges. That would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon. That's an Old Testament term for hell, the place of the dead. And it would burn to the root of all my increase. See, Job understood the relationship of commandment 7 to commandment 10. That it's beneath the surface and that it is a matter of the heart. And guess what? Jesus agreed with both Moses and the Ten Commandments and Job. It's Jesus that said in Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart. This is where it originates. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And the bottom line for us today, we got the big bottom line that goes all for six weeks. But here's the specific one for today that I want us to really grapple with is this, sexual wholeness. Yes, I wrestled with, what should I say there? Uh, thriving, um, flourishing, purity, morality. I, I don't know, but I just said wholeness. 
wholeness. You have a, a good, healthy perspective on it, and you're whole. You're not living in your damage or the things that you've done. You're free. You're made whole. Sexual wholeness is not a line I cross or a box that I check, but it is the direction of my heart. How you doing? Because that's, that's the heart of everything. What are the desires of your heart? And, and you might be uh, hitched up. You might be um, jammed up. You might be addicted. You might have some terrible habits going on, some, some skeletons in the, in the closet, some things that you didn't get caught for, um, things that are, you get, might have a shame storm going on in your heart. But listen, there's wholeness available. There's healing, and I want you to hear this. Nobody but Jesus got this perfect, and he knows that too. You didn't check the box. I did cross the line in some way, shape, or form. Absolutely, according to the standard of Jesus, we cannot say we checked the box or, or didn't cross the line. But what is the current direction of your heart in this matter? Because this is true flourishing. This is wholeness. The kind of person who loves God with heart and mind and imagination, who, who honors an individual of the same or opposite sex as sacred image bearers. It does not look at them as an object or a product to be used. They see them in wholeness of purity. They love with goodness and wholesomeness such that every relationship is wholesome and dignifying and pure. And I want you to just think, what, what kind of problems would go away in our churches, in our households, in our world? Hashtag me too would never happen in this kind of universe. If we saw each other as unique image bearers, esteemed and dignified. And this is when we say beyond the prohibition to the positive, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. Loving God and loving others with and from the heart. Now, I want to take a little bit of a right-hand turn and say there's a few things, a few touch points or talking points that we need to jump into today um, on this matter. Um, want to use this as a moment to really balance what God's word teaches us concerning sex and sexuality as the trail has been lost and we're soaked to the bone and night is coming. And the first thing to understand about this is this, and I tried to like ignore this, and, but every time I went to, to ponder and pray, this kept coming back, that I need to double down on this, that Jesus is pro-sex in context. He is pro-sex in context. Why is this so important? Um, one of the reasons is something that I call Augustine syndrome. I, I make up words and phrases. This is original. Augustine syndrome. If you know Augustine um, from the 4th, 5th century, Augustine was raised uh, with a Christian mother and a pagan father. He was taught the ways of Christ, and he rejected them wholesale, and he went all out in sexual immorality all out in his younger years, first several decades of his life. And he actually had a, a, a child with a concubine, really a, a prostitute wife. 
And um, about in his 30s or 40s, I don't remember, maybe it was all the way into his, his 50s, he repented. He repented. And I find it so interesting, the timing. He got all his crazy out, and then he got serious about Christ. And in, in my opinion, he absolutely oversimplified and overcorrected, so much so that he believed sexual union between genders, even in marriage, was a necessary evil for the procreation of mankind. Um, and he, tormented by his youth, um, oversimplified, overcorrected. That's my understanding of Augustine's legacy on this matter. Great thinker, great theologian, love August, Augustine, but on this topic, I think he missed it. And in fact, I think he starts to match what the Apostle Paul tried to warn Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, talking about false teachers in the future, men who forbid marriage. Saying, only if you absolutely have to. But let's, let's put that stuff away. And that's just simply not the balance of Scripture. So for that reason, we need to, to be reminded, Jesus is pro-sex in context. And there are some really wonderful things about this that I just want to fly through. First of all, four things about sex. Sex is recreational. Absolutely recreational. This is why, why uh, Solomon would say to his son in Proverbs 5, let your fountain be blessed. And that is a euphemism. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Go for it. Enjoy this. This is a celebration of life and worship of Almighty God to enjoy his good gifts in proper ways. And so there it is, Proverbs 5, 18 through 19. Here's another thing. Uh, number two, sex is comforting. It's comforting. I find this fascinating. David sins grotesquely by taking another's wife and then murdering the husband. And she conceives, her name's Bathsheba, and, and she's sick, and, and the baby's probably going to die. And so he fasts and prays, and God, out of discipline, takes that child back to himself. And they are brokenhearted. They recognize what they've done, and there are grave consequences. What's the next thing that the scripture says that they do? 2 Samuel 12, 24. says that David took Bathsheba and comforted her and lay with her. And she conceived, guess who? The great-great-grandfather of Jesus of Nazareth, Solomon. So you got this picture of even just a jammed-up, rocky, messed-up deal and God using this physical union to bring comfort and Solomon results from that union. It's recreational, it's comforting, it's bonding. Moses, Jesus, and Paul verbatim said the same thing. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and, the, and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined, let no man separate. Three people said this, saying the exact same thing. It's bonding. It's recreational, comforting, bonding, and it's spiritual and procreational. This is the, the prophet Malachi. In Malachi 2.15, did he not make them one with a portion of his spirit in their union? That's mind-blowing. Husband and wife coming together. 
in part of God's spirit there with them in their union. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. It's spiritual and it's procreational. So guard yourselves in your spirit, in your spirit, in your spirit. It starts here in your heart. Guard yourself in your spirit and let not, not one of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And so here's why I, I set that up and say all this is first, curiosity about sex is not sin. Curiosity is not sin. Sexual desire is not sin. Thinking about sex in general is not sin. In fact, uh, we think it might be Solomon again. Could be King Lemuel is a pseudonym for him. But in Proverbs 30, this is in the Bible. This is the, the, the one writing the Proverbs says, Three things are too wonderful for me. Four, I don't understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. He's saying, and, and actually the, the, the Hebrew uh, word grammar structure is saying, this is what I really want to tell you. These are three other metaphors, but here's the one I really want to tell you about. This is mind-blowing how God created male and female and when they come together. That the psalmist is going, this is kind of, this is kind of cool and mind-blowing to think about this. And so what am I doing with all this? I'm trying to correct Augustine syndrome. Because some of us have been so damaged Things that have been done to us, the things that we've engaged in, the things that, that, that we've perpetrated, and we just maybe at an age and feeling so much shame that, that we lose a healthy perspective on something that is so awesome and mind-blowing because we're just covered in filth. Remember what Paul said to the, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, right? And so how do we get to a place where our sins are forgiven, we're walking in newness of life, and we're set free from the damage. And I would just take a moment off script to just add a plug, man. Get into a small group, get into an accountability situation, see your pastor, see your coach, see a therapist. Do whatever you need to do to get whole, because sex is good in context. Well, let's move forward and uh, jump to the second one, lust. And I want, this, this just needs to be nuanced. Lust, while not as extreme as actual adultery, is just as bad. And so I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth because I have to, because Jesus did, because the scripture does. And we say, hey, all sin's the same. And it's all just, you know, if you sin, I sin. We're all sinners, and, and so we're all the same. Yes, in, in the sense of breaking faith with the creator, yes. And the scripture says that you, you keep the whole law, you, you offend it in one point, you're guilty of all. Yes. And we're born sinners and we act out sinfulness. Yes. And sin, all sin is not the same. And so, even as Jesus says, uh, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So uh, I might as well do it. She wants to, I want to, and as long as we keep it under wraps, I already did it in my heart, nothing any worse. And that's where some of us want to go in our imagination. It's simply not true. Can I just tell you, adultery in real life includes adultery in the heart and much more. You follow? 
So stop, cease and desist where you're at. Arrest it right there, no farther. You already crossed the line between you and God and breaking faith. Don't go further. Because Jesus isn't saying one step is the same as a thousand in the physical, metaphysical, moral, social, legal, medical realm. All sin is the same and not all sin is the same. Okay? I want to demonstrate this really quickly because I think that this tension is lost on a lot of shallow 21st century theology. Sin is sin. Sin is sin. No, it's not. It is and it isn't. Um, it gets worse. And the consequences become more grave. And the changes that happen in your life and other people's lives become worse and deeper and more dangerous. And I want us to understand that and have a real healthy, nuanced theology of this. But it's really found in Romans chapter 1. I'll fly through this. Because there is a clear progression that it's all sin, it's all breaking faith with God, but society and people go from bad to much, much worse. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's all bad, right? Ungodliness and unrighteousness. But verse 24 says, God gave them up in the, the lust of their heart to impurity. So now we're talking about sexual sin. Normal, run-of-the-mill, everyday, uh, heterosexual immorality. Okay, you jump forward two verses to Romans uh, one twenty six. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passage, uh, uh, passions. So now you're going from heterosexual immorality to homosexual immorality. It's getting worse. And then um, it says in verse 28, two verses later, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. So now it's temptation and crossing the line and we're in sin and it's bad to now you're actually debased of mind. Your brain, your, your thinking, the jokes that you tell, the things that you enjoy as entertainment, the music that you write or listen to on your playlist, it's getting worse and worse to do what ought not be done. And then finally in verse 32, it explains it. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. So now you've gone from temptation and slipping off the path to now you're celebrating it in culture. And, and why I want to say all that is, is it's all bad. It's all, it can be of the same species of sin. But it is a, a different stop on the road. Follow? So just because you go this far doesn't mean that you might as well. Stop. Cease and desist right where you're at. But don't just do that. Brings us to our next, next point, and it is this. Immorality, the reason why, why Jesus goes into plucking out your right eye, cutting off your right hand, the two most honored members of the body in Jewish thinking, your right eye, the best vision you have, the, the most people are, are right-handed, and that's the picture. The best hand you have, if that's what you need to do, this sin is so alluring, yet deadly. Deal ruthlessly. Do whatever you have to do to not just cease and desist, but to back up. Find your way out of that mess. Get yourself off that mountain. 
You're never going to make it to Bridal Veil Falls in time. Get down the mountain and get home and do anything you have to to make it there. Yes, it sounds like when Jesus says, cut it off, pluck it out, it's better to enter heaven maimed than the lake of fire or hell. And you go, huh, that's interesting. It sounds like work salvation, doesn't it? In fact, I'll say this, that um, work salvation, uh, early church fathers took this in other scriptures and go, I think that, like, we got to do some pretty crazy stuff. I don't want to go to hell. And they took this literally as a workspace salvation, uh, second, third, fourth, fifth century. Okay? Um, that that seeped into the church really early, and that this became a new law and a new box to check. So, origin of Alexandria, first and second century. Your second century theologian, philosopher, an ascetic, meaning no pleasure, like starve yourself, kind of a monk out in the desert. He read this as well as um, Matthew 19, 12, where Jesus says, some make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom. And history tells us that Origen mutilated himself. Some say he did it to himself. Some say that he paid a physician and castrated himself. And you go, that's Origen. He's a nut job. He was branded a heretic by certain branches of the church over other topics. But apparently this was popular enough in the ancient church that it had to be outlawed and codified at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. That anyone that personally does this to himself cannot then go into the ministry. They were banned from the ministry. It was aberrant. It was detestable because Jesus is not advocating salvation by self-mutilation. He is advocating sanctification by mortification. Big words, I'm sorry. Sounded good. Um, really, the path of walking with Jesus, if I can just explain it, the path of walking with Jesus, you're not going to get it perfect. But that we should have a heart for the Lord in wholesomeness and holiness, not against sex as a beautiful gift, but we should have such a heart that we look at those things lurking in our own lives and say, God, I will do anything that I need to to escape this wretchedness that I find around me, but even more importantly, within me. Whatever it takes. So, um, Instagram. You love it, and those fun, you know, pictures worth a thousand words, and you don't have to read everyone's story and Facebook. But they start to throw stuff at you. They want you to click on it. It's clickbait. And you find yourself going down that path, and it's a gateway, it's an entry to porn. And you go, you know what, in the end, I don't need Instagram. Or Facebook, someone's trolling you. So-and-so wants to be your friend. You go, that's weird. Click on it, you go, whoa, Yola Bola, you know what, she's not even the real person. There's some pervert that's trying to lure you into the, the underworld, and you know it. That stuff really happens. Hey, if they could do it with Billy Graham sermons, they'd do it. All they care about is money and getting you to go to their site. But they also know the darkness of the human heart. And yet you've got to have Facebook. 
I mean, it's how you stay connected with your 12,000 friends, right? But how about this? No, I pluck it out, I cut it off. I'm no longer on Facebook. If that's your, if that's your gateway, if that's your stuff, then you would be willing to just, I'm nuking that. It triggers stuff in my heart that is not good for me. You're ruthless in, in rooting that thing out. Listen, this is um, Solomon to his son, Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 9. The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. And then a little bit later on in Proverbs, stolen, this, is, this is the forbidden woman saying and in, in enticing, stolen water is sweet, bread eaten in secret is pleasant. She's trying to allure. And it doesn't have to be her, it can be anyone. Trolling, trying to get you to, to engage and imbibe. And they know your algorithm. They know how to trigger you now because you clicked on it once. This is what... The end is, verse 18, but he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. That you know it is alluring. It's the most powerful and intoxicating of temptations. So Jesus was not advocating mutilation but mortification. You do whatever you have to, whatever you have to, to get free of this crazy stuff because the end is a train wreck. Dallas Willard says this, Jesus' teaching here is that a person who cultivates lusting in this manner is not the kind of person at home in the goodness of the kingdom of God. And so we are at home in the kingdom. We want these things, and so we do whatever we have to to escape the toxicity of the world. And this is what the Apostle Paul said, 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Okay, now I got one more thing before we wrap this up about purity, okay? And it's this. Just because we haven't doesn't mean we can't or shouldn't. And let me unpack that in a second. Just because we haven't kept it perfectly, just because there are some things in our history just because we haven't kept his standard from the heart doesn't mean we can't. And what I mean by that is maybe you're not going to get it perfect. But from now on, the direction of your heart is toward God. And the idea of shouldn't is shouldn't try. Because some people just give up and say, I'm done. I'm already that person. So just because we haven't doesn't mean we can't or shouldn't. Jesus knows we didn't. That's what the cross is for. But before we just oversimplify that and go, yeah, I'm just a Christian, I'm all messed up, but at least I'm real. At least I'm authentic, man. How about this? God is good and he has something better for all of us. Let's get after it. And guess what? He is at work within us to make it possible. We even go back to the Old Testament. I'm reading this in my personal quiet time, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 30, 18, or Deuteronomy 30, 11. For this commandment that I command to you today is not too hard for you. Oh, it's too hard. I can't stay pure. It's not too hard. Stop saying that. 
neither is it far off. The Apostle John, 1 John 5, 13, for this commandment that I command you today, or, or for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. It's not, a, oh my goodness, we got to stay pure now. I got to give that up. Can't do it. Liar. Jesus says you can. I love this in John 8. The woman caught in adultery, and Jesus is scribbling on the ground, and at the end, after everyone walks away, and he says, woman, where are your accusers? She goes, nowhere, my Lord, and he says, neither do I accuse you. And then what does he say next? Go and sin no more. He is not giving her an impossible standard. Now, does he know that she's probably going to sin in some way? Yes. She's not going to keep the letter perfectly. It's not going to be a box that she kept, but the direction of her heart, he's saying, follow me. From now on, don't go back to that. Go and sin no more. And then I just want to give you a quick life hack, okay? We could, we could extend this five more weeks. Let me give you a quick life hack. How are we going to do this? And by the way, none of us are out of the woods, even if we're in our 60s and 70s. How do we do this? Psalm 119, 9 through 11, where David says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. We must have our minds and imaginations washed by the word of God. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. David would go on to say, I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So it's going to be the word of God. It's going to be prayer. It's going to be friends. It's going to be a pastor. It's going to be a small group. It's going to be a therapist. That God uses all these things to help us get home to where he's waiting for us. And for all those things that have already been done, I want you to hear these words. For our sake he made him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him, including our sexual purity. The only one that made it through this life perfectly he was tempted in all points, yet without sin. And he made it to the cross, pure and perfect, and traded places with us. But it only happens if you invite it. And you ask him, dear God, please, come into my life, forgive my sin, wash me clean. Change me from the inside out. Won't you invite him in today? Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your purity and your beauty and your goodness. Thank you for the common grace gift called sex and sexuality. Forgive us, Lord, for destroying this good gift, for making it an idol, for, for twisting it, for weaponizing it. Lord, we've been damaged by the fall. We've been damaged by others. We've turned around and we've damaged others. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for trading places with us. Thank you for taking our impurity Thank you for the blood that washes us from all uncleanness. Thank you for making us the righteousness of Christ. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.